Let's play word association. If I say the word marriage, what comes to mind? A lot of you, the first word that came to mind was bad. (laughs) Bad marriage. Or maybe good marriage. Or hot marriage. Or new marriage. But my guess is that if you're 35 or younger... Um, or not maybe all of you, but many of you from, from, from listening to, to many who are in this age group, um, I, I think maybe the word scary might come to mind. Because if I say the word marriage, it's like, ugh, scary, scary. Or, or maybe puzzled, because we live in a culture that really doesn't understand marriage very well, and we're, we're perplexed by it and exactly what it means. Is it a piece of paper? Is it a contract? Um, is it for life? You know, some people look at marriage like it's a life sentence. And for some of you, you may be married to someone, it may feel like a life sentence. But um, it, people aren't sure. Is it between a man and a woman? Can it be between two men? Can it be between two women? Can it be more than just two people? What is marriage? And that's kind of how we're wrestling with it on, on, the, on the window of it all. But I think much deeper, we're wrestling with bigger issues. Because as a culture today, we've, we've kind of bought into the idea that marriage is something you do after you move in, you know? And it goes something like this. Well, let me, before I get into that, let me just tell you how things used to be. And for many of us, it's a world long past. But it used to be that dating was like getting to know somebody, you know, socially and emotionally. And getting to, you know, kind of moving toward finding that one person that you would want to spend your life with. And then... You find that person, and then you have an engagement in which, you know, you're really getting to know them emotionally, and, you know, you swap rings and whatever, and then finally marriage, and then fireworks start. (laughs) We live in a culture today where fireworks often start on the first date. And so we're not really sure where we are because some will say, well, yeah, I had sex after I went to a bar on a first date, and I don't really know what I am. Am I a friend? Am I... You know, someone I work, it's, is it just somebody I work with? Am I now a boyfriend? Am I now a girlfriend? Where are we in this relationship? And so we're kind of like, you know, hooking up one time after the other and maybe trying to find that person that we might want to live with. And so we're saying, okay, maybe we're to the place where we move from two addresses to one address. And, and then what I often hear, and I think I see this in the Hollywood culture, and it kind of like matricular, or kind of moves down to us, there's this feeling that says, um, the relationship is about to wane. I can feel it starting to slip. We've been together, we've been living together, been having sex for a long time, and it's starting to move down the relationship, and so maybe it's time to get married. And so the couple gets married, and then they go on a honeymoon, but the honeymoon is just kind of like a vacation, But the problem with it, we don't really know how to apprise marriage because maybe we're getting married because we think this will sort of resurrect the passion that we first had when we hooked up. And and so we're going to get married and think it's going to bring it back. But then when it doesn't bring it back, oftentimes that kind of relationship will break apart and we'll have a divorce statistic. And, And statistics are very clear on this, that if people live together before they get married, they're more likely to divorce than people who do not live together before they get married. And so, a lot of you who are, you know, under 35 or whatever, when I say the word marriage, you're in that culture. It may not be what you're doing, but you're at least in that culture, and that has kind of become a new norm. And so, I want to do something that I don't think I've ever done before. In fact, I know I've never done it before except the last two services on the weekend here. But I I want to offer a generational apology 
Because to all of you who are, are in that environment today, my generation owes you an apology. My generation and really the generation before me. Because the, the culture that you live in today is largely the fault of my generation. I'm part of the baby boom. Baby boom is a term, a sociological term that refers to the children who were born post-World War II. People who had grown up in the Depression and young adulthood had gone to fight the greatest war in American history came back home, and they were having, you know, getting married and having families. And there is this huge generation that we call the baby boom, people who were born from the year 1946 to 1964. Sociologists have also referred to us as the pig and the python, as if a python would swallow a small pig. And as you see the python moving down the snake and being digested, it's very evident where that pig is. And our generation is so large, that's why sociologists have referred to us as that. And for those of you who are part of Gen X or Gen Y or any other generation, sometimes you can resent baby boomers, and I don't blame you a bit for that. And on top of that, most of us have grown up in my generation very selfishly. Not all of us, but many of us have. The reason for that goes like this. Our parents suffered through the Depression, fought the war, came back home, started a family, and they said, my kids are not going to suffer like I suffered. So, and by the way, I know what I'm talking about because I was born in 1956, which is one of the two median years of the baby boom. And thankfully, my parents weren't like this. But a lot of parents said, we, 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 never su- we, we had to suffer. My kids will never suffer, and we're going to give them whatever they want. So if baby boomers tend to be selfish and self-absorbed, that's why. But there was another compounding factor that had something to do with the way baby boomers grew up. And that is that because science was making so, many pro- so much progress in our world, you know, with the space program and all of that and medicine, Parents said, we need a more scientific way to rear our kids. You know, our, our parents grew up, you know, going to church and, and believing in God and having old-fashioned morals. But we need a more scientific way to raise kids. And along came Dr. Spock, and not the guy on Star Trek, but Dr. Spock. And he, he, he said, the way to raise kids, and I'm going to paint with a broad brush, but it was essentially this. Give them whatever they want. Don't crimp their style. Don't shade their sockies. Let them have whatever they want. And above all, don't discipline them. So a whole generation of kids grew up self-absorbed and many times absentee parents because it was the time when we were rushing, you know, in the 50s was a time of materialism and getting ahead and having the bigger house than the person down the street. So think about how most or many baby boomers grew up. We grew up not being told no. In in a world where we have more than any generation before us, and oftentimes with absentee parents. And there are three things from my generation that for all of you who are younger than me, and especially those of you who are mid-30s and below, I want to apologize for. Because we did some things that left you in a really bad situation. The first thing I want to apologize for from my generation to your generations is the sexual revolution. I know that if you read sociologists, if you read, you know, textbook authors, or if you just listen to pop culture in general, people will talk about, wow, you poor Gen Gen X person, you poor Gen Y person. It's too bad for you that you weren't around in the 60s because the 60s were wonderful. It was free love. It was free sex. It was everybody sharing everything. It was a golden time before the conservatism of the 80s and, and all the sexual, you know, transmitted diseases from the 90s. It was a golden time. Guys, that's a lie. That is a, a lie. I mean, I was a kid in the late 60s. I was a teenager in the early 70s. I saw it. 
You know, we had the so-called summer of love in 1967. You know, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. I mean, it was like we're going to, you know, drop out of society. We're going to go dance around in the park, and we're going to share everything, and it's just free love. If you see somebody you want to hook up with, that's fine, because here's the thing. My generation was also taught evolution from the second grade as I was in Texas schools. And so here's the thing. If you've been taught that you're an animal and you're just a product of evolution, and, and, and really, after all, there's no reason to, like, be held down. Sex is a natural act. It's a biological act. So to repress a natural biological act, well, that's a bad thing. So therefore, just give in to your urges and be with anybody you want to be with. In the early, early part of the summer in 1967, the so-called summer of love, it looked like a good idea, and kids came from all over the nation to San Francisco. By the time the summer was over, it was a nightmare. Kids were strung out all over the streets, being taken advantage of by older kids, no food to eat. You know, if it was such a good idea, why did it not work after that summer? Like Dr. Fields always asking, how's that working for you? It didn't. So then we got the idea for communal living. We need to just like, you know, go back, uh, remember Elton John's old song, you know, go back to the woods and just hang out and be natural. And the idea was that people just live in communes and nothing would be a possession, not a, not a piece of property, not a, not a guy, not a gal. It's like we're just sharing everything. So we're just living together. There's one big community. And so if you want to hook up with some other gal beside the one you're with or some other guy besides the one you're with, you just do it. And they shared everything. And if they found something growing out there in the grass they thought might go into the pot for supper that night, they would throw it in the pot. It was a disaster. And the communes quickly faded. Some of you who are in younger generations, you've heard that Woodstock was just this awesome thing. By the way, if so, why was there only one? (laughs) I know. You know, we, we often, when we were seeing Woodstock, we watched the performers on the stage. Get some footage that takes a look at what it was like for the people out there at Woodstock. There's a reason why there was only one. But if you listen to the social commentators of our era, it's like it was the golden age. It was the sexual revolution. I mean, it was like people giving in and being with anybody they want to be with. I want to tell you that that particular storm didn't last very long. It imploded on itself. You know, I'm from Texas, and when I was a kid growing up, my favorite vacation spot in the world was Galveston. My mom and dad, you know, they're from the great generation. They like to have a, you know, a vacation was getting in the car and driving all over the country. For me, I like to go somewhere and do something, and my favorite spot was Galveston. And I loved to swim in the Gulf, but what I really enjoyed was late in the day just walking up and down the seawall and going to all the curio shops. I saw a picture of one of my vacation, favorite vacation spots last week. The sky was clear. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, but the debris on the seawall boulevard there was everywhere. And I thought, this town is never going to be the same again. The storm of the sexual revolution is past, but we still have the debris everywhere. And for all of you who are younger than me, and even my own generation, even though that era has passed, we are growing up with the debris And I think that's part of what causes many young people today to struggle and try to figure things out and make sense of things because if I can be with anyone I want to be with, then what does marriage mean? Hmm. What I'm going to talk about now, a lot of you probably will never never have heard of. And you may never even have known that that the country was different. But the second thing I want to apologize to you for is something called no-fault divorce. 
Most of us, our adult lives, our young lives, all of our lives have been lived in a climate where if two people were unhappy, or one person was unhappy in a marriage relationship, they could just go down and basically file for a divorce. And after that point, it's you get your lawyer and I get my lawyer and we do financial negotiations and we just we d- decide who's going to handle different parts of the prop- property. Did you know that there was a time if you wanted to get a divorce in America that it was like, we're going to court. And it's not going to court to see who is going to get possessions? It's going to court to find out whether or not we can have a divorce. And somebody's got to lay out grounds for a divorce. For many of us, that's a world we cannot imagine. And yet, and yet do you know that the first time that no-fault divorce became part of the nomenclature of the United States was in 1970 in California? Ronald Reagan signed it into law. Before that time, if you wanted to get a divorce, you had to go to court and show why you wanted to get a divorce. Now, I was a freshman in high school in Texas at the time in a debate, and I can remember debating this topic of no-fault divorce. And I remember that it was ushered in with good intentions because the idea was divorce can be so nasty and having to air laundry in public is a bad thing. So let's just say it's nobody's fault. Let's just go into court and deal with this civilly. But the problem with no-fault divorce was simply this. It put perpetrators and victims on the same level. And guys, I want to tell you, many days of my life, I started to say almost every day of my life, I won't go that far, but many days of my life, I have to sit and hear the sad story from a man or a woman who is saying, I'm in court and I don't want to get a divorce. And I know that it's diff- it was difficult in those days. But you see, I mean, I'm just looking at this from a man's point of view. Before I decide that I'm tired of my wife and I found some gal that I like better and I'm just going to like leave my situation here and hook up with her, if I know I'm going to court, I'll think twice. By the way, do you know who brought us no-fault divorce? The first time no-fault divorce was part of our world was in 1918. It was in Russia, and the Bolsheviks brought it in because they came in with a purely atheistic, secular teaching And they said, hey, there's no reason why we should be held back with cultural mores of whose fault it is. Let's just tear it up and start over again. And I know that the moment I bring that up, there are going to be people who say, well, Mark, I come from this particular situation, and and I know that sometimes divorce has to happen, and I know sometimes it's advisable, and I don't mean by any, any stretch to say that it's never a good idea. But at the same time, wouldn't you agree with me? Even if you say, Mark, I've been through it, especially wouldn't you agree with me? It's a little bit too easy in our culture today. And so for all of you who are young and trying to figure out what marriage is all about and you're puzzled by it, from my generation years, I want to say I'm sorry for no-fault divorce. The third thing, and this is, you know, actually no-fault divorce and the sexual revolution was really before my time, but boy, this next one goes right to the very era of my generation. Like I said, I was born in 1956, so really I came of age after Vietnam, you know, after a whole lot of the summer love, after a whole lot of stuff that didn't work. My generation came along and said, wow, we're like, you know, we're like a calf in a hailstorm. We don't know what's going on, but we do know this. It's a good thing to, you know, get somebody to, to be your life partner with and to be with forever. So maybe it goes like this. We don't need a piece of paper. We don't need a piece of paper to prove our love. And that's, this is really my, my specific generation that said, we don't need a piece of paper. Yes, I love this person, and I want to be with you forever, but we don't need a piece of paper. 
And what happened in all these three things is that marriage just kept getting valued less and valued less and devalued. And today, I still hear people say that. Well, Mark, we don't need a piece of paper to prove our love. But if that's true, what's wrong with the paper? Um, <laughs> I, um, I'm always telling you guys about my car. I have a Honda Accord. And I love my car. I really love my car. Um, this is my third. And I got away from God and bought something else right before I had this car. You know, fuel was going up, and I just put like 25,000 miles a year or more on my car. So I thought, I'm going to buy something really, really inexpensive, something really, really tiny, and I did. And then, as I've told you before, it, I lost control of it on the turnpike because of the wind and the rain, and I wound up hitting a wall going 73 miles an hour, and God spared my life. I didn't get hurt, but I ever, after that, even after I got the car repaired, I'm thinking, and I am scared to be in this little car. At least that's what I told Mary Alice. And I said, I really... Really need to get something bigger. So it, it was about two years ago, this, this coming November, it had started snowing real heavy, and I was still driving that little car, and, and I was really scared. And finally I said, that's it, and, and I'm going to call Honda, and, and I'm going to get my car. And, and so we, we negotiated for the price, and, and, and I'd never even seen that car. And I said, here's what I want. I want a black sedan V6 with leather. Gave them the code for that particular car. And I said, do you have one that's black with beige leather? He said, yeah, we've got one. So I, I never had even seen it when I bought it, but I got it, and I love it. It's just, I love being in it. It makes me feel good. I do most of my life in my car. And so I got it, and so, oh, yeah, I feel so good with my car, and I'm always driving. In fact, whenever Mary Alice gets in the car, I'm saying, man, I love my car. I love my car. I love my car. So I had to have an oil change on the other day, and a little, little, little maintenance. You know, I think it's a conspiracy of the auto dealers to make you come back to the, to the car dealership to have this work done. But I was driving on Kellogg, you know, going, going over there, and, and I just kept thinking, I love my car, I love my car, I love my car. So, you know, they take it, and, and they're saying, we'll be through within about 45 minutes. So I said, that's no problem, I'm just going to walk around. And now, all of a sudden, I'm walking around, and there's all these new cars. <laughs> Different colors, but I'm not tempted. I love my car. But I walk around in the front of the showroom, and all of a sudden, looking at me, is a brand new red coupe with black leather, V6. And they have, Honda has tricked this car out. Chrome wheels, you know, expensive tires, navy system. And all of a sudden, my car (laughs) is like an old friend. But one look at the ticket on the window, you know, the sticker on the window, and I'm thinking, I don't think I've ever seen a Honda cost this much in my life, and I'm thinking, it's not a good idea. And so, but suppose for a moment, just, just you and me, suppose I went to the dealer and I said, hey, you know, I mean, see that little red coupe out there? I, I really think that coupe is for me, but I'm not sure. I don't know if we're compatible or not. I would like to take it and drive it. And he would say, he would say well, sure, Mr. Hoover, you know, I'll just come with you and we'll put a dealer tag on the back and, and, and you can drive it for a little bit, drive it around town, and I'll just sit here and ride with you on the weather. That'd be just fine. I said, no, you don't understand. That's not exactly what I want. I don't know when I'm going to bring it back. <laughs> it may take me 30,000 miles to find out if, if I'm compatible with this car. 
And he will say, well, Mr. Hoover, if you want to know if you're compatible with this car, this is just really fine. Just come on in here, and, and we'll do the deal, and we'll sign some paperwork. And I'm saying, I don't need a piece of paper to prove if I'm compatible with this car, and I just want to take it. Now, you're laughing because it ain't going to happen. I know that. But let's just speculation. Let's suppose for a moment that he said, okay, take it. And so I'm taking it home, and man, I'm just loving it. Man, I'm out driving. I'm, I'm like, I'm burning rubber. I'm, you know, I, I'm just seeing what it'll do, how fast it'll run, how quick it'll stop. And so here goes 10,000 miles and 20,000 miles and 25,000 miles. And the guy calls me from Honey, and say, well, Mr. Hoover, what do you think about this? And I'm saying, well, you know, I'm starting to see some problems with it. I got some rock chips on the hood. You know, some, you know, the Kansas went in, somebody swung the door open, and it got a dent on there, and I'm thinking, hey, I don't know if I want this. I think maybe I should just walk away. Why is it? Think with me for a moment. Why is it that that sounds so implausible when we're talking about a $30,000 piece of equipment, but when we're talking about being with a son of God or a daughter of God, all of a sudden it just sounds so reasonable? Why is that? Well, I, I just want to offer an apology to all of you who are young, and I'm sorry for the world that you're having to live in and, and, and the world you're having to find a life partner in. And I've never done this before this weekend, but I just want to offer you a generational apology and say that a lot of the world that you live in comes to the fault of my generation. But you know what? We can't live in a world of should be or wish it had been. When you and I come up to the plate and we're standing there the whole world can be messed up. The world can be screwed up through all different ways, but we want our lives to be right. We want our marriages to be right. We want our kids to have the very best possibilities. So given the fact that we're here in this series called Pillow Talk, we want to know more than just why things have gone wrong. Isn't it true that we want to know how can things go right? How can they go right for us? Our series is called Pillow Talk, and the subtitle of it is Five Secrets of Love and Sex. And the reason we say there are secrets is because, you know, the culture screams out all kinds of information on sex, but it's wrong, and the church has duct tape on its mouth. Well, we're ripping the duct tape off, and we're looking at the secrets, and we're finding out what is it that we really should know about sex and love. And so are you ready for number three? Here is the third secret of sex and love, and it is this. Commitment is sexy. Commitment is sexy. Our world's been taught something like this. You know, sexy is like hooking up with somebody you've never been with before. And it's somebody that, where the relationship is new. But Rutgers University did something called the Marriage Project in 2000. They came up with this interesting observation that is statistically proven. And it's simply this, that people who are married tend to be much happier with sex than people who are living together. Wow. I mean, it even blew my mind that, that people would say that. But it's true. People who are married are much happier with sex than people who are just hooking up or people who are living together. There's a reason for that. Actually, four reasons. And I want to give those to you why marriage is so important. By the way, who invented marriage? God. I mean, you, you barely open the Bible, and what happens? God tells how he married Adam and Eve, the first marriage. Jesus starts his ministry. What is the very first miracle Jesus performed? Before he ever raised anybody from the dead, before he ever gave a blind person sight, before he ever caused a lame person to walk, the very first thing Jesus did was to turn water into wine at a wedding. In fact, let me tell you, maybe I'm going too far with symbolism here, 
But I honestly believe that what Jesus is trying to teach us is that if you invite him to your marriage, he can turn water into wine. So why is commitment sexy? Why is commitment sexy? Let me give you four reasons. Number one, it is because you are going to bed with somebody you are in a covenant relationship with. Now, the word covenant may be new to some of you, but the Bible is a book of covenants. Covenants are agreements. And, and, and the kind of covenant that we're talking about is where two people agree to terms, but those terms cannot be changed. If you're married today, you're in a, and if you got married before God, and you made promises, you didn't just make promises to the person you're married to, you made promises to God. I had two weddings this weekend. And in both weddings, I asked the same question. I looked at a bride and groom, and I said, do you promise before each other and before your family who are gathered here, and do you promise before your friends, and most of all, do you promise before Almighty God to keep the terms of your vows? You say, Mark, I don't like her anymore. She's just difficult to live with. But you just didn't make your promise to her. You made your promise to God. You say, Mark, he's just a jerk. Okay, well, all most men are, but here's the deal. <laughs> you didn't just make your promise to him. You made it to God. See, I used to do a lot more marriage counseling. I can't marry as many couples as I used to, but I used to do long marriage counseling, like eight or ten weeks before they got married. And the very first segment of that counseling, I always ask a question. I said, is marriage a contract? Now, they're a little scared already being in my office, but they don't know quite what to say. And I had some say, yeah, Mark, marriage is a contract. Well, legally it is. But the answer, if you're a Christ follower, is marriage isn't a contract. It's a covenant. And I used to joke with them, although I wouldn't let them know I was joking. I would look at this groom who's always scared to death, future groom sitting in my office. He's terrified of marriage counseling anyway, you know. And I would say, now marriage is a covenant with God, but it's going to be a contract with me. I'm going to make you sign a contract with me since I'm marrying you. And I said, here's the deal. If you divorce this gal, don't worry about who's going to get the house. Don't worry about who's going to get the car. I'm going to get it. <laughs> One guy, I was counseling, his eyes got that big. He knew I was kidding. <laughs> Marriage is a covenant. It is a promise that you make before God. And, and, and I don't want to go into this because it's kind of gory, but back in the Old Testament days, the Old Covenant days, that when two people made a covenant with each other, they would sacrifice animals, and they would put the body parts on either side, kind of creating a lane. And they would walk together through the, that lane, on, that, on that lane through the body parts, and they were basically saying, I am making this promise to you so that if I break the promise, may the same thing happen to me that happened to these animals. Ooh, I'm glad we don't do that today. But it was serious. It was serious. See, what happens is like when we have sex with somebody that we're not in a covenant relationship with, we don't know how valuable are we, how valuable is that person, how valuable is our relationship, what does it mean? You know, am I a boyfriend now? Am I a girlfriend now? Is this somebody who's never going to call me again? Is this somebody who doesn't even care if I live or die? I just give my body to somebody I don't know if he even knows I'm alive. I don't know if I'm being loved or used. Man, when I'm in a covenant relationship, it means something. It means that this is a person who has vowed to be faithful to me, not only before me, but before God. This is a person I've vowed to be faithful to. No matter who I find that looks like a red Honda Accord Coupe with chrome wheels, I'm committed. This is a covenant. And boy, I'll just tell you something. Here's the thing. I know a lot of you may have a hard time dealing with this because it sounds so radical. That's when sex 
means something. That's when it means something. Well, this goes, the second thing goes with the first thing. Whenever you read about a covenant in the Bible, whenever God makes a covenant, there's always something very special about it. God is saying, if you will meet the terms of this covenant, God says, I will bless you. Read the covenants. You know, read the Adamic covenant. Read the uh, Abrahamic covenant. Read the Davidic covenant. Read the covenants in the Bible where God said to men and women, if you will be faithful and meet the terms of this covenant, you will live under an umbrella of blessing. Wow. That's when sex is awesome, is when you are with your covenant partner and together because you're being faithful to your covenant, you are living under an umbrella blessing. I know that my talk already today has probably raised some guilt in your minds and hearts, and trust me, that's the last thing I wanted to do. Because somebody can say, well, Mark, you know, I'm living with this guy. Does God not love me? He loves you very much. You say, Mark, I'm... I'm still kind of doing the dating scene. Does God not love me? He loves you enough to send his son to die for you. It doesn't matter where you are, God loves you. But see, here's sometimes something that's not very clear in the church. It's one thing for God to love you very much. It's something else to be under the umbrella of his blessing where he can bless you the way he wants to bless you. Let me tell you, I know one thing about every person in this room, no matter where you've been or what you've done, I know this, God wants to bless you. God is not looking for a reason to hurt you. He is looking for a reason to bless you. God loves you so much. He's got his hair trigger on the blessing that he wants to pour out of heaven but he can't bless us if we're not where we need to be. Guys, I'm not rich. I live week to week like most of you. But I can tell you this, by the grace of God throughout my lifetime, as I look back on my life, I have been under that umbrella of blessing. I'd rather have lived my life and had the favor and blessing of God on my life than to be the richest man in the world. Because as I look back, you know, as a married man and a dad and as pastor of this great church, I look back and I see that God has had his umbrella over me and the blessings that come. You know, here's the deal. I I could, and thankfully I never have in my prayer to God is I'll never even get close to this, but I'm in a covenant relationship with Mary Allison, and God forbid something really messed up could happen in my mind where I could get attracted to somebody else and I could say, well, okay, God will still love me if I step outside the umbrella of his blessing. But if I did, wow, all that wonderful blessing and favor that God has put on my life, God would look down from heaven and say, Mark, I love you very much. I so want to bless you, but you've moved out from the place where I can bless you. And that's why I want to stay under the umbrella. There's a third reason why commitment is sexy. Not only is it a covenant relationship and a blessing relationship, but you know what? I know that when I'm with my wife, And when you're with your covenant partner, you're with somebody that you share a life with. Hey, I'm I'm not going to tell you a lie. I'm going to be academically honest with you. It's exciting, I'm sure, to hook up with somebody you've never been with before. I mean, yeah, there's a certain buzz that you get when you're like, you know, at the bar and you're kind of like checking somebody out and they decide to go home with you. And yeah, for a while it's kind of exciting. But let me ask you a question. What is it that always comes after that relationship when you're dressing and getting ready to go? Guilt. Guilt. I'm telling the truth, aren't I? 
I mean, it's like when we get the message from our culture that says, wow, this is really fulfilling. You know, it's, it, it's strange. You and I have to be so careful with the messages that we get from the culture at large because they lie to us. Just this year, we, we watched as one of our presidential candidates had a real sordid thing happen. I mean, the couple, when they were, like, giving campaign speeches and stuff, they were so attractive. The guy's an engaging speaker. He's an attractive person. And, you know, when we found out that he cheated on his wife who had cancer and that, you know, he got caught in a hotel and, they, you know, the media had him pinned in a men's room, God, it was so awful. And, and, and even when this guy, when, when his own party had a convention, he tried to call some friends who were members of his own party and try to explain things to him, and they hung up on him. They wouldn't even talk to him. But answer the question for me. If you and I went to the theater and we started watching a movie about a political candidate, and he got kind of infatuated with one of his campaign workers, and they got together, wouldn't that be entertaining? I mean, that would be something. I mean, the way the culture would, would present it is, isn't this cool? But my question is, how does it look in real life? Not so good, does it? And as I said today, you know, many of us could hear today's talk and you could say, Mark, I just feel so guilty. I feel so guilty. Could I tell you that the very last thing God wants you to feel is guilt? Guilt goes nowhere. Guilt comes from the enemy. So if you have things in your past, you know, that I've talked about today, and, and it's kind of like, ooh, Mark, that's kind of uncomfortable because I've been there, and how do I feel about it? Hey, let me tell you something. There are three mistakes that none of us should ever make with our past. Number one, we should not make the mistake of staying there. If, if, you've, if you've had something go wrong in your past, something that's not going right right now, don't stay there. I mean, because here's the deal. God will forgive you if you'll come to him and confess your sin. God will forgive you. Don't stay there. Number two, don't fail to learn. You know what? If I, if I sin against God and I suffer for it, the worst thing can happen with that is I fail to learn the lesson. I bet a lot of you right now know somebody that's like had a bad relationship. And you knew it from the beginning because you saw this guy that she was getting involved with and you knew he was the wrong kind of guy and you almost like, it's like watching a car wreck happen and you knew it wasn't going to work for them. And yeah, sure enough, it falls apart and they go through all the grief and then it isn't long before she finds somebody just like him. Or he finds somebody just like her. So number one, you don't stay there. Number two, you know, learn from it. And number three, third mistake that we make sometimes is getting defensive. You know, oh, don't go there because I'm sensitive there. Hey, if you have things in your past that you're unhappy with and things that you know are wrong, I mean, the first thing you do, bring it to Jesus because the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, forgives us and cleanses us from all sin. And I can tell you, you haven't done anything that's not part of that all. Second thing is learn from it. Learn from it. You say, okay, the enemy got me there. He won't ever get me there again. And number three, and guys, this is what I love about New Spring. You know, things get back to me from what you're doing. And, and, and I love this about you guys because, you know, we're, we're a church where people come. This is not a church for perfect people. We'll make that very clear up front. This is a church for people who've had some issues and problems. You know, we want you to come on in. And, and one thing I keep hearing at New Spring is it'll get back to me that some of you have had some problems and made some mistakes in your life. And I'll hear this. Someone else who's about to take a step that direction, I'll hear that you say, please don't do that. 
I did that. It didn't work for me. Man, that's getting back to me that you're saying that. I'm so proud to be your pastor, but let me tell you, when I hear that, I feel like I'm 25 feet tall. Because some of you who've gone the wrong direction, I mean, it's not like you're getting specific and telling a lot of details and stuff. It's just that I've learned, I've learned, and God has brought me so far. Please don't take a step that direction. So if you've got things in your past that are wrong, you know, take it to Jesus, learn from it, and share it with other people so that they won't make that mistake. One more thing and I'll be through. When you have sex with your covenant partner, your husband, your wife, you know that you're in bed with the person who loves you the most in the world. Nobody here, if you're single, nobody here should ever get married until you love that person, that man, that woman more than anybody else on the planet because that's what God wants let let, let me read to you what scripture says I'm going to read from the message because it is so very plain but the the scripture tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16 there's more to sex than mere skin on skin sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact as written in the scripture the two become one Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. That kind of sex can never become one. Now listen, what was the expression over and over that God used to describe married people in a covenant relationship? Become one. God doesn't tell us to become one with our children. God doesn't tell us to become one with our friends. Marriage is such a lofty position. In fact, the Bible says it is a picture of our relationship with Christ. It is such a lofty position that you actually become one with your husband. You actually become one with your wife. Sex is just a physical picture of what God wants to be the truth spiritually. Sometimes I hear people say, well, Mark, I got married because uh, my kids need a dad. Guys, I love you with all my heart, but that is cosmically criminal. Mark, I I got married because my kids need a mom. That may sound noble, but it is criminal. Because here's the deal. Marriage means I love Mary Alice more than I love anybody on the planet. You never saw a dad who loved his boys as much as I love my boys. But I love my wife more. Remember this. Families are meant to grow apart. Marriages are meant to grow together. And, and, and I know that life circumstances and situations can create difficult, you know, things like, you know, all kinds of things can exacerbate issues. But at the end of the day, if you're married, your wife should know that she is the most important person in your world. Your husband should know that he, you say, well, Mark, I've got kids. I understand that. But the greatest thing you can ever do for your kids is love their dad. The greatest thing you can do, dads, for your kids is to love their mother, even if we're talking about a stepdad or a stepmother. Because marriage is the basis for everything. Well, I know, wow, we had another hour to talk. But I, I, I really, I know how life is, okay? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Pollyannish, even though I, I say I am sometimes. 
for many of us, we're going to go home to a less than perfect marriage. And you can say, Mark, my sex life is, you know, it's just going down. Do you realize that every married couple here could have that covenant blessing person who loves you most in the world kind of relationship if we choose it? That won't be the norm. (laughs) It may not happen with everybody else on your street, but it could happen to you. At our church, I've been talking about the family for a long time. I think my first series on the family was in 1989. And I I gave a story, and a friend of mine bought me this to remind me of that story. Regardless of what I said about that Honda Coupe, my favorite car in the world is not a new car. You know, if I see somebody driving down the street in a new BMW, ooh, I'm glad for them that they've got it, and, you know, I'm a car guy, and I like to look. And if I see somebody in a new Mercedes, you know, or a new Corvette or something, I'm attracted to it, but it's not the car that catches my attention the most. The car that catches my attention the most is a bright red, perfectly coiffed, 1956, fire engine red, Thunderbird. Now, if I see somebody in one of those, that will get my attention. And if I can talk to the owner, I tell them the same thing every time. I always say this, because it sounds good to me. I always say, I will pay you what that car cost when it was brand new. <laughs> well, it makes sense to me. It's 52 years old. Nobody should get as much as a car costs new when it's 50. And, and they just do the same thing to me that you did. <laughs> they just laugh at me. And, you know, I said that to one guy one time, and I said, man, I'll pay you what this costs new. And he said, man, don't you understand? This is a classic. Well, let me ask you a question. Where, where are most 52-year-old cars? <laughs> Long ago, they were junk. They were salvaged. They were crushed. And they're, they're part of steel girders that are holding up a building. They're part of a bridge. Almost all 52-year-old cars are there, but, but not this one. Husbands, wives, you listen to me for a moment. You know what, man? <laughs> Some of you could just have a total turnaround in your marriage if you understand this. You know what made this car a classic? Somebody decided to love it. Somebody decided to love this particular one. And man, they care for it. You ever get around a car guy, a car gal? I go to car shows. I like to watch them. Boy, they'll get the Windex out. I mean, they'll, they'll make sure there's not a smudge on that thing. They won't drive it over bad road. In fact, they drive it very judiciously. They make sure everything's just right. They make sure nobody hurts this car because it's a classic. You know what makes a classic marriage? It's, it's not because, I mean, people don't pick a classic car because it was the best particular one that rolled off the assembly line. They, they pick it because they chose to love it. And what makes a classic marriage is there's a guy who maybe is not married to a perfect gal, but he chose to love her. There's a gal that's not married to a perfect guy. He's a guy with all kinds of flaws, but she chose to love him. And I think many more times than we realize, they didn't stay together because they loved each other. They stayed they loved each other because they stayed together. And they worked hard at it. And they fought off the predators. And they fought off the things, the boredom. They fought off all the temptations to sell short. And today, and I see this with many of you, after 10 years, after 20 years, after 50 years, it is hotter than ever. 
because your marriage is not in the junkyard. It's a classic. Let me tell you something. You have sex in that environment. You have hotter sex than anybody who's, you know, bumming around the bars. You have hotter sex than anybody because you're in a covenant relationship with the person who loves you most in the world, who will never leave you, who is always there for you. And I want to tell you something. That's when sex is hot. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we've learned today. And I just ask you that for all of us who tend to deal with guilt, perhaps on some of these issues, that you'll let us know that that's not what you want from us, that you want us to learn from the things that are wrong, to bring them to you and teach others and get on with living life the right way. Father, I pray for husbands and wives who right now have marriages that aren't good, maybe some that are just about to give up and call it quits and take it down to salvage. Lord, help us to realize it. If we'll just move under your umbrella, that you want to bless us. Father, help a single today who'd be listening. And it's so hard, Lord, to find. It's so hard to find somebody who wants to have this kind of marriage today. But, Lord, I, you're God. And, and for every single person, we only need one, Lord. We don't have to have a whole group. We just need to find one gal, one guy. Father, I pray that you would help every, every single person here to be the right person and bring the right person into their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, I'm into overtime, but let's pray one more time, please. Let's pray. Let me tell you, you can't be in a covenant relationship like God wants you to be until you're in a covenant relationship with him. And scripture tells us that we're all sinners, 100% of us. God loved us so much that he put his son on a cross so that we could be forgiven. A few moments ago, I said from 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. That is exactly what God wants to do from every one of us. You say, Mark, you don't know what I've done. I know what you've done is part of all. And Jesus' blood took care of it on the cross. If you've never invited Christ into your life, you're living life without the power that God wants you to have. And beyond that, you're living without the promise of everlasting life. If you've never received Christ today, I'm going to pray a prayer. It's real simple. It's real short. The Bible just says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to give you a chance to pray this prayer. If you mean it from your heart, God will listen. If you're ready, if you believe Jesus died for you, if you believe he rose from the grave, if you're ready, you can pray this prayer with me and God will hear you. You ready? Here we go. Jesus, I know I've done wrong. I admit it. I believe you died to pay for my sins. Forgive me and save me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you meant that from your heart, you just called on the Lord. And Scripture says if you do that, God will forgive you, make you his child, and let you live forever. I have a gift I want to give you. It won't cost you a penny. If you just prayed to receive Christ with me, would you take your worship folder? There's a part that's detachable. Detach that part. Say, I prayed with Mark. Put your name and address on there. I want to give this to you. In fact, if you drop it in the boxes by the back doors, the bottom of the staircase, or in the offering plate, I'll mail it to you this week. If you don't like to wait, you don't have to. I know we're crowded today. But if you wish, if you pray with me, you can just bring your card. I'm pointing right through those middle doors. There's two stations beyond those doors called New Spring Store and Guest Services. All you have to do is bring your card back and say, I pray with Mark. They'll give this to you today. You can take it with you.